Hello, and thank you again for joining these video teachings on death and dying. Again, my name is James McMillan, and I'm a family physician with a particular interest and clinical focus on palliative care, and I'm grateful you're tuning in today. In this series, we've been exploring the theme of death and dying from a Christian perspective. Again, in our first video, we did a bit of cultural analysis looking at different trends, changes, and postures that our culture has adopted with respect to death. And we saw some of the challenges and unique opportunities in our current cultural moment. In our second video, we did a quick overview of Christian theology and tradition, seeing how they inform death and dying. And today, we're going to get more concrete, discussing some things that a person might want to consider in preparation for death, introducing advanced care planning and palliative care. We'll also explore some of the challenges and opportunities for those who are caring for the dying family members and friends. And finally, we'll examine some of the ways that the church can serve dying members and their families and postures the church can take to help nurture what we're calling a culture of resurrection. I'm going to warn you in advance that this is the longest of the three sessions because we're covering a lot of material. So you may want to press pause, get a favorite beverage, find a comfy chair before we resume. And as with uh, all of our other discussions so far, this video is just a brief introduction. And it's in no way a comprehensive treatment of what is a large and significant topic. But I'm hopeful that it, again, could be a helpful starting point. Um, for you to think through some of these matters and again to spur further conversations in your family and church community. As before, I'm indebted to many writers whose works have shaped my thinking and whose words have informed these videos. And again, a handful of books that I'd like to acknowledge and recommend if you're interested in exploring these themes include The End of the Christian Life by J. Todd Billings, The Art of Dying by Rob Mole, On Death by Tim Keller, A Faithful Farewell by Marilyn McIntyre, and Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. So in the first part of this video series, we noted how our culture tends to ignore, minimize, or even deny death, and how those postures are in opposition to the traditional Christian understanding of death and dying. We briefly introduced this term Ars Moriendi, which is a Christian tradition that translates as the art of dying. And we're now going to unpack it in a bit more detail. As we've seen, um, scripture and historic Christian leaders advised that we should regularly think about and prepare for our death. Even if our health, age, and situation would suggest that our death is only a theoretical idea on the distant horizon. Again, in Psalm 39, we read, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a mere handbreadth, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Martin Luther echoed this theme, advising, We should familiarize ourselves with death during our lifetime inviting death into our presence when it is still at distance and not on the move. So why might God want us to regularly reflect on our inevitable death? 
This isn't just a morbid preoccupation, but it is a spiritual posture that, as J. Todd Billings suggests, punctures our hubris, our sense that the world is a drama in which we are the focal point. Preparing to die encourages us to live with eternity in mind. The prospect of death focuses our priorities. As Billings says, the process of embracing my mortality is a God-given means for discipleship and for witness to the world. So how do we do this? Well, one practical preparation for one's potential death, again, even if it's not on the immediate horizon, is collecting prayers in advance that could be used in times of future suffering, illness, and grief. Our Christian tradition is rich with really thoughtful and wise prayers from those in the communion of saints who have gone before us and who have experienced suffering and provided meaningful expressions of faith. We're also fortunate to have contemporary prayers and reflections from wise Christians that are in our contemporary language. I'll mention just a couple that have been particularly helpful in my experience. Uh, Every Moment Holy, Volume 2, Death, Grief, and Hope by Doug McKelvey is a truly wonderful gift to the Christian community. It's broad in scope and rich in content, providing prayers for many situations and giving language that allows us to grieve with hope. It's got prayers for the receiving of bad news, for the morning of a medical treatment, for those who are enduring lasting pain, for those weighing last stage medical options, for the morning of a funeral, for the loss of a spouse, for the anniversary of a loss, and many, many others. Another book that I've already mentioned, but I'll highlight again, is A Faithful Farewell by Marilyn McIntyre, in which she provides reflections on many real-world situations and emotions that the dying face. At the end of each meditation, there's a short prayer, which I think would be helpful in giving voice to concerns for which you might not readily find words on your own. Reading these prayers, even if they don't immediately apply to you, helps reorient the mind and provides us with a language for future use as well as for when we might be praying with those in our community who are currently suffering or facing death. So this spiritual discipline of reflecting on our mortality and adjusting our priorities accordingly is a valuable practice even when death is a more distant possibility. However, When a person receives a life-threatening or life-limiting diagnosis or is experiencing the decline of age and chronic illness, this habit of mind is brought into even sharper focus. If we've been cultivating the Christian art of dying, we will be better equipped to experience a good death. Again, we've seen how unlike in previous generations where death was often sudden, rapid, or unpredictable, our deaths are much more likely to be slower, gradual, and more conscious. And this reality allows us to more intentionally embrace and thoroughly practice the Christian art of dying. As Marilyn McIntyre says, in the Christian understanding, a, quote, good death meant one that offered a chance to repent, confess, make amends to those one had harmed, and make one's peace with God. Blessings that come with a gradual and conscious dying. I'd probably add that the prayer that my dying might in some way be a gift and a witness to those around me, that I might 
take it as one more opportunity to refract grace into the world. When Christian teachers over the centuries have expanded on Ars Moriendi, several themes emerged as central to the project, and Rob Mole summarizes them. Death requires preparation. The dying process is a deeply spiritual event. Death is to be actively undertaken. Death is a public and instructive event. And death injures the community. Spiritual preparation involves acknowledging our mortality and our limitations and surrendering our will to the God we believe is both sovereign and good. It requires accepting that we are not our own and gladly welcoming God's providence. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism captures this question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Spiritual preparation also involves seeking to align our hearts to God's will, allowing the Spirit to prune back those habits and ways of thinking that would keep us from obeying the two great commandments of loving God and loving neighbor. And so this might mean actively seeking reconciliation or extending forgiveness to family and friends. It might mean having those conversations that we've been putting off for way too long. It might involve writing a letter or recording messages for those who are too young to receive them right now. Now, shifting gears a bit, our preparation for death is not merely spiritual. There are many practical matters that we would do well to consider. And so I'd like to talk about some of them now. A term that you may have heard is advanced care planning. And uh, it's an important component of preparing for one's eventual death and for expressing your wishes for your end-of-life care. Uh, Advanced Care Planning Canada provides a brief description. It's a process of reflection and communication. It is a time for you to reflect on your values and wishes and to let people know what kind of health and personal care you would want in the future if you were unable to speak for yourself. Advanced Care Planning may include thinking about information about treatments that you do or don't want to have, such as CPR or mechanical ventilation, as well as other information at, at, about your care at the end of life. For example, religious rituals, being able to see a family member, dying at home or in palliative care, etc. Advanced care planning also involves establishing a medical proxy or a substitute decision maker who knows your values and your wishes, and who could advocate on your behalf if your health situation prevented you from communicating. If a person hasn't appointed a substitute decision maker, the government actually has legislation that automatically delegates that role to the people who are closest to you in sort of a hierarchical manner. So for instance, first your spouse, then your eldest adult child, etc. However, even if your choice of substitute decision maker would be the one who the government would automatically appoint, such as your spouse, I think it's wise to formally go through the process so that you can take time to reflect on these matters, uh, have the necessary conversations, and clearly articulate your values and goals. It's important to note that an advanced care plan is not a single conversation and not a single form. Rather, it's an ongoing conversation and or document 
that may be revised multiple times. And it's important to note that it does not go into effect until you are unable to speak for yourself. There are many benefits of having an advanced care plan, some of which include giving the gift of guidance, confidence, and strength to those closest to you in the event that you become ill and that they have to speak for you. Also providing clear instructions for healthcare providers and others who may have to make decisions for you. Also learning about and choosing from the options available for your healthcare in a variety of situations. Also including that, or excuse me, ensuring that you receive medical care that supports your values and faith tradition. And preventing the use of medical procedures that may prolong your life unnecessarily and against your wishes. So having an advanced care plan is important for many reasons. And in fact, multiple studies have shown that if patients engage in advanced care planning, they are more likely to have their end-of-life wishes known and followed. Their family members will have less stress and anxiety. They and their families are more satisfied with care, and they have a better quality of life and death. On the flip side, avoiding advanced care planning often results in a higher burden of suffering, for patients, care that is inappropriate with the patient's wishes, lost opportunity for good time with family, and more time in the hospital and ICU. One aspect, although certainly not the totality of an advanced care plan, involves what your wishes would be for resuscitation in the event of a cardiopulmonary arrest. In other words, if your heart and lungs suddenly stop working. And I know most of us are at least somewhat familiar with the idea of CPR. As you probably know, CPR can involve mouth-to-mouth -mouth breathing, pounding on the chest, and or shocking the heart with an AED or hooking up a person to a ventilator. However, our perspective has often probably been more shaped by Hollywood than by reality. There was actually a, a pretty famous study that was um, chronicled in the New England Journal of Medicine in 96 that reviewed all of the episodes of kind of popular medical dramas at the time, the TV shows ER, Chicago Hope, and Rescue 911, over one year, and they counted every occurrence of CPR and the outcomes of those occurrences of CPR. And in this world of TV, there were 60 episodes of, excuse me, 60 occurrences of CPR over 97 TV episodes. And of those occurrences, 75% of the patients survived the immediate arrest, and 67% appeared to survive and achieve hospital discharge. Unfortunately, reality is not nearly that rosy. Um, survival rates of CPR in the real world are considerably lower. Most cardiac arrests occur outside of the hospital, and so those who suffer an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, the stats show that over 90% of them die. And for older, frailer adults at like a nursing home level, typically more than 97% of those who have CPR for a cardiac arrest die. And that's even though there are trained nurses on sites and an AED is accessible. People with significant disease likewise have vanishingly low chances of success. And in many cases, the people who quote survive CPR do not actually return to their baseline. Some will have organ damage, perhaps brain damage, and some will have functional impairment, and some will never recover enough to ever leave the hospital. 
So the New England Journal of Medicine article indicated that the portrayal of CPR on TV may lead the public to have an unrealistically optimistic impression of CPR and its chances for success. In fact, knowing the harsh realities, it's not surprising that when surveys are conducted, physicians are much less likely than the general public to indicate that they would want CPR performed on them if they had a cardiopulmonary arrest, particularly if they are older or if they have significant illness. And patients who are suffering from significant frailty or who have a life-threatening, life-limiting illness, such as advanced cancer, are the least likely to benefit and probably the most likely to suffer from CPR. So it's not surprising then that a medical team might discourage a person from requesting CPR. I know these are difficult conversations, but they are important. And perhaps all of this may strike you as irrelevant to your current situation, especially if you are young or youngish and healthy, but it's actually not too early to begin advanced care planning. The time to have these conversations is long before you need them. The ICU is certainly not the best place to start having end-of-life conversations. So there are many resources that are helpful in guiding you through the process of developing an advanced care plan. A couple that I'll mention are advancedcareplanning.ca, which provides a lot of excellent information, conversation starters, templates and samples for people wanting to construct an advanced care plan. And another local resource, My Voice Workbook, which is provided through the Sask Health Authority website. Moving on, another related but distinct and important consideration is goals of care discussions. So while an advanced care plan refers to the future, goals of care refers to the present situation and a patient's wishes with respect to care and treatment options given their current situation. Now, some in our society have this proclivity to choose any possible treatment option irrespective of the potential downsides of the treatment. Now, perhaps this impulse partly springs from a fear of death or from a, quote, fighting spirit, But sometimes it's actually because of simple ignorance of the risks and benefits associated with treatment. For instance, someone with advanced widespread cancer that has already failed first, second, and third-line chemotherapy might still be eager to try the fourth-line chemotherapy, even though its chance of success is marginal and the anticipated success is only an extra two months of life, which would probably be filled with numerous appointments, treatments, tests, as well as a significant burden of side effects that might limit meaningful time with their family at home. On the other hand, some people outright refuse treatment because they don't truly understand the potential risks and benefits of the treatment. Some have this vague notion of what chemotherapy is, And that's perhaps shaped by the experience of a loved one. And then they have determined that they would categorically refuse anything that falls under the umbrella of chemotherapy. However, it's important to recognize that chemotherapy is a very broad category that encompasses all sorts of treatments. Some, yes, with a high burden of side effects and a high burden of appointments or trips to the hospital, but others that are actually much less likely to cause side effects and are much more convenient than you might anticipate. It's important to recognize that 
different people may have different goals that they want to achieve. Some might be more concerned with remaining at home and avoiding tests or treatment, if at all possible, in order to maximize the quality of their remaining time with their family, even if such a course of action might shorten their life. Others may pursue longevity as their primary goal, particularly if they want to achieve a certain milestone, for example, the birth of a grandchild or a family wedding. And so they might be willing to put up with more treatments, more side effects, and more inconveniences if that is the more likely road to reaching that milestone. Some people value dying at home, and others don't want to die at home. Some want to do all they can to maintain certain functions, for example, being willing to have a significant surgery and a long post-op recovery in order to maintain the ability to walk, while others might be more willing to give up those functions to avoid the risks or the challenges of the proposed intervention. So you can see it's not a one-size-fits-all situation, and this is why robust discussions with family, friends, and the medical team are so important to clarify the goals of care. John Dunlop, who's a geriatrician, summarizes some key questions that need to be pondered, asked, and answered in helping people make informed and meaningful goals of care decisions. And it's worthwhile to note that the answers to some of these questions might actually be surprising or unexpected. So we'll go through them. What is the exact diagnosis? What is the natural progression of the condition without treatment? If you were to allow the disease to advance, what would happen? What are the treatment options for the disease? What are the chances for success and how do we define success? What are the potential complications of the treatment under consideration? All important questions to ask and all gonna be unique in the situation you may find yourself. Now it's probably a good time to introduce the concept of palliative care. Now, I know that when some people hear the term palliative, their backs instantly stiffen and they immediately think of the final days of life when nothing more can be done and all the doctor can offer is hand-holding and morphine. And while it's true that palliative care does encompass those last days of life, and while it often includes pain medication and always tries to include comfort, palliative care is actually a much broader and more robust concept that we would do well to explore. The World Health Organization provides a pretty comprehensive but super helpful definition of palliative care. It's long and it's wordy, but we're gonna go through it together because I think it's important. So palliative care is an approach that improves the quality of life of patients and their families facing the problem associated with life-threatening illness. Through the prevention and relief of suffering by means of early identification and impeccable assessment and treatment of pain and other problems, physical, psychosocial, and spiritual. They go on, palliative care provides relief from pain and other distressing symptoms. It affirms life and regards dying as a normal process. It intends neither to hasten nor to postpone death. It integrates the psychological and spiritual aspects of patient care. It offers a support system to help patients live as actively as possible until death. 
it offers a support system to help the family cope during the patient's illness and in their own bereavement. It uses a team approach to address the needs of patients and their families, including bereavement counseling if indicated. It will enhance quality of life and may also positively influence the course of illness. And it is applicable early in the course of illness in conjunction with other therapies that are intended to prolong life, such as chemotherapy or radiation therapy, and includes those investigations needed to better understand and manage distressing clinical complications. So again, in that last point, you notice the word early. And ideally, palliative care should be introduced early on whenever a patient receives a life-threatening or life-limiting diagnosis. And then palliative care can work alongside the other healthcare teams, even if there is still active disease modifying treatment going on. Too often, palliative care has kind of been treated as an on or off switch. There's nothing more we can do. Okay, let's refer to palliative care. Oh, the disease is getting better. Let's cancel palliative care. But really, it's much more helpful to think of it as a dimmer switch. And there's a diagram that I think can help illustrate this. So, again, the arrow is indicating time, and so at the beginning of the diagram is the diagnosis, and the blue triangle is representative of kind of active disease management in attempts to cure or slow the disease. Palliative care is the purple triangle that is overlapping, and so you notice that over time, the involvement of palliative care is gradually increasing, and perhaps as the illness progresses, or there's intolerance to treatments or other considerations, the disease management gradually tapers down. But you notice there's a sustained overlap between the two. I'm just gonna show another diagram that kind of expands on this. And so in the bottom left corner, we've got the disease management and just showing you some of the things that might be included in that, like chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, etc. And then on the right bottom corner, the palliative care triangle um, is focusing on rehab, hospice, pain and symptom management. But you notice that there's a significant overlap between the two. And so for instance, radiation might be disease management, but it also might be palliative. Radiation can be a palliative uh, attempt to control significant bone pain sometimes. The shape of this diagram has been called a bow tie. And so some people refer to this as the bow tie model of palliative care. And so palliative care teams can help patients navigate the ups and downs of their illness throughout the entire process. They can help patients clarify their goals of care, interpret medical information for them, and then empower patients to make decisions that are in keeping with those goals of care. And studies have actually shown that compared to patients who were referred to palliative care late in their disease process, those who had earlier palliative care referrals had less depression and anxiety, they had better quality of life, and they lived longer, as much as three months. That might be surprising, but there are data to suggest that in some instances, people who pursue palliative or hospice care actually live longer than those who only keep up with conventional medical treatment. For instance, Atul Gawande relays a landmark study in 2010 from the Massachusetts General Hospital in which patients with stage four lung cancer were assigned to one 
of two possible approaches to treatment. Half received just the usual oncology care, and the other half received usual oncology care plus parallel visits with a palliative care specialist. And the result? Those who saw the palliative care specialist stopped their chemotherapy sooner, entered hospice far earlier, but experienced less suffering at the end of their lives, and lived 25% longer. And after discuss discussing some other similar studies, he concludes, if end-of-life discussions were an experimental drug, the FDA would approve it. Again, palliative care strives to emphasize comfort, dignity, and quality of life. And it's not passive, it is active care, intentionally working to help manage the physical, psychological, and spiritual concerns that patients experience. Now, some people hold the perspective that stopping treatment is a sign of weakness or is giving up or otherwise wrong. However, it's important to recognize that given the patient's goals, values, and situation, the wisest course of action might actually be to stop treatment or to forgo treatment. Now, this concept can be difficult for the patient or the family to accept. And interestingly, there are actually some data to suggest that this may be more difficult for Christians. Rob Mole described a study published in the uh, Journal of American Medical Association that found that, quote, people of religious faith, 95% of whom are Christians, were three times as likely to choose aggressive medical treatment at the end of their lives, even though they knew that they were dying and that the treatments were unlikely to lengthen their lives. In the words of one researcher, it seems that those patients would hold on as long as possible to give God every opportunity to grant them a miracle and save them. And unfortunately, in the pursuit of heroic measures or aggressive treatment options, the outcomes are sometimes no better or even worse. In some of these studies, the researchers report that those who get more aggressive care have decrements in their quality of life, and the more aggressive care did not predict survival differences. Furthermore, not only were Christians more likely to choose aggressive medical interventions, they were also less likely to have done advanced care planning. Now, this should be surprising because, if anything, a robust Christian theology and tradition should make us more likely to prepare for our deaths and more hopeful in the face of suffering and death. There must come a time when Christians shift their focus from extending life to preparing to die. Christian teaching holds that our present earthly life is not the highest good. And the view that earthly life should simply be preserved at any cost seems contrary to Christian faith and hope, which rightly honors self-sacrifice unto death and martyrdom. It has been said that fidelity to the Christian moral life means neither assuming that life should always be extended as long as possible, nor assuming that death can be chosen any time that life seems burdensome. As difficult and as real as death and dying are, Acknowledging our mortality, accepting the limitations of modern medicine, and resting in the ultimate hope of our Christian faith should help us reframe end-of-life decisions. As one patient helpfully said, I've given up fighting, but I haven't given up hope. 
As we've seen, hope is a core Christian virtue. End-of-life realities do not have to extinguish our hope, even if they do require us to reframe our hope. So a reframing of hope might look like this. I had hoped that this chemotherapy would prove effective and put the cancer into remission. But now, my hope is that I'll be able to spend the remainder of my days in hospice, surrounded by family and friends, expressing our love for each other and celebrating our hope in the resurrection. Though it may seem that things are slowly being taken away from me, I rejoice that nothing can separate me from the love of God. The harsh reality of disease and decline is that in the final stages of our lives, we are likely to become more dependent on others. And this can sometimes be very difficult to accept. However, Christian theology teaches that we are social creatures created for community and that part of community involves bearing one another's burdens or sometimes having your burdens borne by another and that we are not self-sufficient, but are ultimately dependent creatures, fundamentally on God and inherently on each other. No matter how hardworking or responsible we are, we are and will be dependent upon others. It's a Christian posture to learn how to receive from others as well as how to give. Christian ethics maintains that being dependent, even very dependent upon others, is not intrinsically an insult to human dignity. Marilyn McIntyre provides some helpful commentary on this, which I think is worth quoting at length. She says, One way to come to terms with all this exposure and dependence is to reconsider what it means to, quote, become like a little child. Although the most common reading of Jesus' admonition to become like little children is to see them in terms of their trust, open-heartedness, and guilelessness, they're also unself-consciously dependent on others for their care and feeding. Children are recipients. Well-behaved children learn to express gratitude, but even the ungrateful ones have a healthy understanding that they are not in charge, that someone else will take over when they don't know what to do, and that there is safety not shame in being cared for. Being cared for is the first and last practice of living in community. The Amish teach that the sick, the elderly, and the dying are gifts to the community because of the love and the care that they bring forth. That's a beautiful and generous way to think about what my, quote, contribution may now be to the community in which I used to be much more, quote, useful. Allowing others to be generous and tender, giving them occasion for the sacrifices of time and energy that deepen their investment in my life, may seem like a necessary evil, but perhaps it's a necessary good. I am still a participant. I'd like to, I'd like to um, shift gears here and address some considerations for those who are caring for the suffering and the dying. As we saw in our initial session, previous generations provided most of the care for their dying family members themselves at home. And again, even children were actively involved in providing care. And although 
society shifted to relocate most of the dying to institutions, again, there is a movement to have more care provided at home. And happily, more people are accepting the call to help serve and care for their sick and dying friends and family. And this is a great and noble tradition in the Christian community. In his book, Medicine and Healthcare in Early Christianity, Gary B. Ferngren describes how, unlike their pagan Christian neighbors, Christians could not abandon the ill, the dying, and the dead. This theological belief gave impetus to an effective healthcare system. He writes, The local congregation created, in the first two centuries of its existence, an organization unique in the classical world that effectively and systematically cared for its sick. And it was from some of these efforts that emerged the creation of some of the first hospitals. Caring for the sick and the dying is meaningful and rewarding work, but it is not easy. It's not only the more obvious duties of taking them to countless appointments, navigating the often complex healthcare system, picking up prescriptions, preparing meals, running errands, or helping with feeding and other aspects of personal care, but it also involves the tending of relationships and the nurturing of faith. And all too often, we're clumsy and awkward around the dying, uncertain what to say or how to pray. However, one simple and essential starting point is to simply be present. As much as, and perhaps more than anything, the dying need family and friends to be with them. This is an elemental aspect of showing care and support. We see it in scripture where when Jesus was suffering and dying and all of his followers had fled, there was a handful like Mary and John who stood at the foot of the cross being present with Jesus in his dying. Rob Mole writes, we may feel guilty for not visiting a loved one more often when she was healthy And now that she's ill, we feel awkward about making sudden and frequent visits. Yet, the most important thing to do is to be with someone facing death. In addition to the practical and perhaps mundane help that can be offered, for example, fetching a glass of water, you can reminisce, tell stories, share laughter, read scripture, and pray. As I mentioned earlier, Prayers in this stage of life can be difficult. Again, often we don't feel like we have the right words to say. However, the good news is that we don't have to rely on our own words. As N.T. Wright has said, there's nothing wrong, nothing sub-Christian about using words and prayers written by other people. Part of our difficulty here is that we moderns are so anxious to do things our own way, so concerned that if we get help from anyone else, our prayer won't be authentic or won't come from our heart. And thus we're instantly suspicious about using anyone else's prayers. But that's like someone who doesn't feel she's properly dressed unless she has personally designed and made all her own clothes. Or like someone who feels it's, an, it's artificial to drive a car unless he has, has built it himself. Other people's prayers can be and should be a sign and means of grace, an occasion of humility, accepting that someone else has said better than I can what I deeply want to express. And again, I would commend a book like Every Moment Holy, Volume 2 by Doug McKelvey, which again has numerous rich and meaningful prayers to share with those who are suffering and dying. Now, sometimes the suffering are reluctant to ask for help 
and sometimes our offer to, quote, let me know if you need anything just never goes anywhere. Many of us are eager to help, but we don't know exactly what to do. In her book, A Faithful Farewell, Marilyn McIntyre provides a practical and helpful list. It's not comprehensive, but it might inspire you and give you some concrete suggestions for what you could offer those who might be less inclined to ask. I'm going to go through her list together. Pray with me and for me, and when I'm too weak to pray, pray on my behalf and in my stead. Bring soup and salad and comfort to those I'm leaving. Offer your skills. Be an ad hoc accountant or event planner or cook or secretary. Be a quiet presence when I need company without conversation. Protect me from needy do-gooders. Help me laugh. Watch comedies with me. Manage the remote. Comfort each other so I don't have to be a dispenser of comfort myself. Spread whatever news other people need to know. Read me psalms and poems and passages from books I've loved. Be my advocate when Nurse Ratched comes on duty. Attend my garden. Burn the letters I ask you to without reading them. Listen to my dreams. Keep listening when I'm not making sense. Let me speak my pain. Reassure me without trying to cheer me up. Pray some more. With me and for me, and in my stead. Now I'd like to zoom out even further and ask, what can the church as an institution do? How might the church help prepare its members to die well? How might the church serve those who are dying and those left behind who are grieving? And how might the church help promote a culture of resurrection? So these are obviously enormous questions, and what we'll offer as suggestions here are incomplete and in need of being worked out more fully. And of course, they will look different in different contexts, but perhaps it'll be a helpful starting point. So again, the church functions as a herald of the good news of redemption of, and of what life for citizens of God's kingdom should look like. Therefore, I think that the church should recover and proclaim Christian teaching on death and dying perhaps highlighting and expanding some of those themes we explored in our second video. And given that our culture has a tendency to try to ignore, deny, or minimize the reality of death and suffering, the church should swim against the current, trying to shine a light on the hard realities of a broken world, bringing them into its life and worship, and inflecting them with a gospel witness. Too often, the contemporary church has taken its cues from culture instead of from scripture. Culture often seeks to only promote, quote, positive vibes. And the church sometimes follows suit with worship services, music, and sermons that are just unremittingly positive and buoyant. Whereas the Psalms and many other portions of scripture give voice to lament and prayers of pain and suffering, the contemporary church often finds these passages awkward embarrassing, mood-dampening, and generally to be avoided. Carl Truman describes how this posture inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphalistic street party, a theologically incorrect and a pastorally disastrous scenario 
in a world of broken individuals. And elsewhere, he says that if our church's corporate worship is characterized by unalloyed triumphalism, where no notes of loss or lament are ever heard, then it's no surprise that our members have nothing to say at the graveside. If their Christian worship is a re-articulation of the American dream, it's no surprise that their liturgy is impoverished. While the church undoubtedly has many reasons to celebrate and rejoice, we are also called to weep with those who weep, both in our corporate worship and outside of it. Now, part of the traditional Christian worship service is the funeral, and the church would do well to recover and encourage a robust Christian funeral service for its members. Again, in our initial session, we explored that modern tendency to shy away from funerals in favor of celebrations of life. And while a Christian funeral service is not less than a memorial or a celebration, it is more than that. Rob Mole points out that even a good death still injures the community, and those closest to the deceased in particular need their wounds healed. Funerals and other Christian rituals following death are meant in part to nurse those wounds and reunite a community that is fractured. A Christian funeral acknowledges the horror of death. It makes space for the emotions of grief and anger that Jesus himself displayed. And it sets the loss within the broader context of the Christian story of redemption. A Christian funeral allows us to grieve with hope. Rob Mole continues, the funeral begins to give shape to the grief as the community expresses its faith and ties the swirling emotions following death into the larger story of humanity's fall into sin, redemption, and the recreation of the world. The funeral is an essential element in the mourning process and a chance for the church to first begin reintegrating mourners into the community and second, to publicly express the church's and the deceased's faith and hope. The church can also serve the loved ones who are left behind in their process of grieving. We see throughout scripture that God places a high priority on serving and supporting widows. And by definition, widows are those who are grieving the loss of a loved one. But too often, our culture and sometimes our churches tries to distract mourners from grieving instead of patiently walking with them through the painful journey of grief. Walter Wangerin Jr. writes how joy and sorrow are not opposite. And he says, it is through sorrow that one discovers a calm, abiding, indestructible joy. Death leads to life and grief is the road between them. Mole echoes this when he says, mourning aided by the rituals of the church community allows those who are swallowed by grief to slowly journey along that road. Again, whereas the very architecture of older churches with a cemetery surrounding the church building and tombs and memorials within the church building gave the congregation these immediate reminders of the deceased members of their community, it's perhaps easier for us to forget those in our congregation who have died. Rob Mole describes some simple practices that might address this and help serve grieving loved ones. So in the church bulletin, rather than simply listing mourners in need of prayer during the week of or the week following the death, churches could keep their names printed for a full year. 
The church could also mark the anniversary of a death during a service or by offering coffee on a Sunday in honor of the deceased. And a church team might be designated to provide one meal a month during the year following a death. This meal isn't provided because someone can't cook while grieving, but simply because the church just needs an excuse to get together and show concern. Our churches can be helpfully countercultural when we try to promote what has been described as a culture of resurrection. Whereas our contemporary culture idolizes youth and marginalizes the old and suffering, a culture of resurrection seeks to celebrate, integrate, and serve both the old and the young, the healthy and the sick, the rejoicing and the grieving. The church should not try to only serve one demographic at the expense of the other. It is healthy for a church to be intergenerational, and therefore the church should introduce the young to the elderly and the dying, even from a young age. Whereas our culture tends to idolize the elite, the shiny, the beautiful, the capable, a culture of resurrection proclaims the doctrine of the Imago Dei. All humans are created in the image of God and intrinsically valuable. As G.K. Chesterton said, people are equal in the same way pennies are equal. Some are bright, others are dull. Some are worn smooth, others are sharp and fresh. But all are equal in value, for each penny bears the image of the sovereign. Each person bears the image of the king of kings. And whereas our contemporary culture tends to idolize the present and prioritize the immediate, a culture of resurrection has deep respect for and acknowledges our communion with the past. Rob Mole explains that the church builds a culture of resurrection when it fosters a sense of the universal body of Christ across geography and throughout time. Those who have died are still present with us as members of the body of Christ. Death has not severed that spiritual relationship. The living Christians and the dead are still of one body, still of one hope. Now, I think that we can also promote a culture of resurrection outside the church. Now, this might involve advocating for comprehensive palliative care services. It's worthwhile to note that currently, about 70% of Canadians do not have access to adequate palliative care. It could involve advocating for more robust mental health services and advocating for more holistic, dignity-affirming long-term care. So that's been a lot. Um, and this draws our video series to a close. I know that spending as much time as we have considering death and dying is not easy or pleasant. But looking death in the face is a helpful exercise. Tim Keller likens it to spiritual smelling salts. Smelling salts are disagreeable, but they are effective. And spending time contemplating our death, preparing for our death, walking with those who are on the road to death, and attending funerals are all difficult tasks. However, as Keller says they are opportunities to listen to God speaking to you, telling you that everything in life is temporary except for his love. This is reality. Everything in this life is going to be taken away from us except one thing, God's love, which can go into death with us and take us through it into his arms. It's the one thing you can't lose. Thanks. <laughs>